Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. My guest today is Tom, Gusto's Chief Marketing Officer. Tom studied computer science at Cambridge and spent the first five years of his career in tech consulting. He then joined Sky, which is famous for its performance culture and numbers obsession, where he spent eight years learning all about data-driven marketing. In 2016, he joined Gusto, having such an incredible marketing toolbox, and his playbook allowed us to scale by almost 30x since he joined. In this episode, Tom will talk about how scientifically he thinks about marketing. He speaks openly about imposter syndrome, and he shares what it takes to scale a business successfully. Tom, it's fantastic to talk to you today. Uh, but before we talk about marketing, tell me what you wanted to be as a child. <laughs> I was born and brought up in the age of uh, the personal computer. And from uh, about four years old, I was coding. And I, I probably learned how to code at the same time as I learned how to speak English in a way. How, uh, like what age, four? Yeah, how? about four. Yeah, it's quite strange. I remember uh, my parents bought me uh, an Acorn Electron, which is like the baby yeah, version of the BBC Micro. Uh, from the supermarket, you could buy these things in Sainsbury's <laughs> back then. <laughs> Uh, which is quite strange. I, I can picture it very clearly in a sort of big box at the end of the aisle saying, can I have one of those one day? <laughs> so I got this computer and used to sit down, you know, retyping code from magazines that used to do wow. back then and like learning how it sort of worked and, you know, writing in basic and so on. And so pretty much I remember saying to my friend at school, primary school, when I was about five, you know, I want to be an inventor. We both said we want to be inventors. Didn't really know exactly what that was but knew something along the lines of creating things um, with technology in some way. So that's what I wanted to be. And as I, you know, as I grew up, I kind of stayed really close to technology uh, and engineering and coding. I went on to study engineering at university and I really, really enjoyed it. I used to love, you know, all that kind of thing. I built a hi-fi, you know, my final year, uh, you know, learned to code even more and so on. And when I left, I, like a lot of people, uh, well, not a lot of people, but, but, but some people leaving university sort of was seduced by the lure of consultancy. Uh, I only applied for one job. That's pretty much the story of my career. So I only ever applying for one job and getting it. Um, so I only applied for one place because I was just too busy doing other things and thought I'll just throw in one application and see how it goes for Accenture. Uh, I got in and, mm -hmm. and back then it was heavily IT consultancy focused. They've obviously broadened out a bit since then, but everybody joined and everybody sort of went on a coding course. And I, I did that for five years and it was really interesting and, and quite technology focused, as I say, but I learned a lot about general management and stakeholder management and so on. And it was a great sort of experience in terms of toolkit. 
Oh, sorry. And that was in 2003. So how culturally was Accenture back then? Because I guess you didn't back then have ping pong tables and free no. beer. Like how, how did it feel and look? So I remember on our induction day, one of the partners came in to talk and as they do, they sort of come in and do a 20 minute piece. And he was French. He was from the Paris office and he looked at everyone and we we're all, you know, just out of you know university students. And he said, okay, I want you to think about this thing. You've got, you've, got, you've got a choice of two different types of company you can work for. You can work for a company which is open to creativity and expression and doesn't follow the rules and, you know, dares to dream and so on. Or you can work for a company that's got, you know, processes and procedures and ways of doing things. And it's very sort of very rigid. And he, he sort of left it there and never didn't really answer the question. And I can I remember everyone looking at each other thinking, oh, yeah, we want to work for that sort of cool company it was like pushing the boundaries and so on. And I later realized that he meant, you know, this is the company where we've got our way of doing <laughs> what the process is and you follow those. So the culture was, yeah, very well, difficult because you would spend a lot of time at client sites, of course, and your, your culture would be somewhat shaped by the people you happen to be with on your on your project. But it was, yeah, it was very rigid, uh, formulaic. Uh, you know, these people used to say that they were androids in a way, they sort of play on Arthur Anderson name. So yeah, it was, it was very rigid, but, but it worked, it worked for me. You know, I'm, I, you know, being a sort of person who, you know, with an analytical engineering background, likes to follow processes to some extent, found that, you know, I could, I could get along with it and, it worked for them. You know, the, the the job was really to get out there and as an analyst or a consultant joining to go out and, and represent the company in the same way all around the world. And it was, it was really good actually. So it was okay, but, but nothing like where we are today and we'll, we'll come on to that. I'm sure. And then at some point you decided to leave. Why did you decide to leave? And I guess why marketing? Even though I've been, you know, very good at technology and very good at coding, I did. I kind of uh, didn't think it was that cool in a way. And back then, there wasn't Google really, and and the internet was only just sort of starting up. And and it, and it wasn't anything like it is today. It wasn't something that you know people you know aspired to. I wondered whether you know people would be ever you know written about in magazines in that field. How wrong I was, clearly. Um, <laughs> but uh, I always kind of w wanted to sort of get out of it in a way because even though I enjoyed it as a hobby and I was good at it. I felt like I wanted to sort of try and draw out of me a more creative side. And I don't, and I'm not particularly creative, um, but my sort of solution to that is surround myself with creative people. Lots of my friends, most of my friends are very different to me. They are actors, actresses. My wife was a dancer. Um, and I've always sort of used that to sort of draw it out of me. And so I left Accenture um, for, you know, a pretty boring reason it was just it just got to the end of the line really i was on a new project that was just really depressing like most people in consultancy who leave it's because you realize you do you two years on on a, on a client and then one day you just go and that's it you don't ever see the results or the ongoing impact and so i wanted to work for a, a client for a, for a company so that i could see the ongoing impact of the work and you know be a little bit more like you feel like you belong somewhere i suppose 
So I, I went to work for Sky in, in 2008, and having left Accenture, thinking I was, you know, the best at everything, and look at this place that I've worked, and aren't I good? Uh, I realised actually, if I didn't have a specialism, it was quite difficult for people to identify what it was that I was good at. I couldn't go around saying, "Well, I can do anything, mm-hmm. really." And so I, it was actually quite difficult to find another job, and especially in 2008, which was, um, uh, you know, the, the, the financial crisis. crisis yeah. But, but through a friend uh, who was working there, it sort of recommended me, again, one, apl- one application, one interview, <laughs> uh, managed to get a job there on the back of my sort of project management experience. So relatively kind of loose connection. Uh, and so I joined their projects team, their marketing projects team, and you know, did a few uh, various projects with them that were working alongside the marketing team, supporting them on things like uh, their introduce a friend program refer a friend program uh some stuff on how the epg works the channel guide um and it was quite interesting and the funny thing about sky is it's a it's a very marketing-led company mm. and me and the rest of the team in the projects group were literally in this sort of dingy building on one side of the road on the other side of the road there was the big building with um all the marketing people in and and the and the chief executive and the glamour <laughs> and i was always sort of enticed by that and, um, I, you know, I didn't really have a strategy of getting into that. And I always say to people, you know, you need to be a bit more proactive. And back then I, I wasn't. And uh, my, my poor strategy was to do a really good job and hope that someone noticed me at some point. So I was really good at the project stuff. And, and eventually, uh, after too long, a couple of years, someone said, oh, hang on, Tom could do this role over in marketing, this new role that mm. we've got. Do you want to come for a coffee? And, and so I went for a coffee with this guy. Uh, he was setting up a new team, uh, which they called the um, sales performance team or the marketing performance team, which was there to really look at how all the channels work together, all the different routes to market they had at Sky, and uh, ensure that they were, you know, being as effective as possible. Mm. So that was my first real introduction into marketing proper. And it was really, really useful because I got to see how all the channels worked. My job was to analyze the effectiveness of them. Wow. Tra- budgets between them uh you know look at promotions look at customer lifetime value model you know cohorts and retention and so on for a subscription business so i spent two years pretty pretty much learning everything there was about all the different channels and how everything interacted i ran you know maybe 400 different promotions in that time i saw you know and, and eventually it became like a you know another language and i could look at any set of results from a you know marketing campaign and instantly know what was going on, why this was like that, what would happen next. So it was a really interesting introduction into the discipline and not obviously not a traditional one. And just describe kind of, I guess, Sky and life cycle or the life stage of Sky back then. Um, to me, Sky is super famous for marketing and performance-driven culture. Mm. Um, but just how did it feel back then? W- was it still growing really fast? Yeah. So back then, I, as I, said, I joined in 2008. And just a little bit prior to me joining, James Murdoch, who was the CEO uh, just before I joined, had set out an ambition to reach 10 million customers by the end of 2010. I can't remember exactly how many, how many they're on before that, but it was, by all reports, an audacious goal and Everyone, you know, when he set it out, was like, that's not possible, you know, come on, how are we going to do that? But it, everything that the company did was pretty much galvanized around that. And they just pushed, pushed, pushed really hard. You know, their you know, motto is believe in better. Everything 
could be faster or more or better. Uh, and they hit it, you know, a month or so before the end of 2010. So that, that really wow. drove the culture quite a lot. And, you know, the way that I describe it is, you know, whatever the targets were, um, if you got close to hitting them, we, they'd move them up again. So, you know, if, if we thought we needed to get, you know, a million new customers in the year and we're on track for that, they go, no, no, make it, make it 10% more, make it 10% more, a bit like a, it's almost like a personal trainer. And they, they used to describe the culture a bit like, you know, like that. And, and hence why sponsoring the cycling team back then was you can always drive more. You don't rest. Um, you know, the next, the next <laughs> person is working harder and you'd run on quarterly cycles. And at the end of a quarter, you know, which ended on a Sunday, you'd have Monday to sort of breathe out. And then Tuesday, it'd be back up again, back on the bike, going again, full speed, no stopping. It was pretty relentless. But if you're a person who enjoys pain and suffering in that sort of positive <laughs> way, like cyclists do, like, you know, I enjoy cycling, it's quite a good rush. And so the kind of people that thrived there were the kind of people that enjoyed that. That's a great point. Um, really fascinating. So you gained a proper toolbox. You had an amazing vantage point. You saw all the channels. And then at some point, I guess, streaming started to become more mass market and Sky invented Now TV, the streaming service, and, and you moved over to own, I think, trading and digital marketing. Yeah. How was that? Really exciting. So having been at Sky for a few years, a big, relatively stable uh, organization they started now tv which was like a startup within sky and uh, again i sort of put my hand up um, for for a role over there and got it and it was really scrappy people were saying look what is this thing it's it's not going to work it looks you know, the website was terrible you know as all kind of startup websites are when they're first you know put together and people were looking at comparing it to the big glossy sky and saying you know you're wasting your time going over there But I went and uh, it was so different culturally. We, they, you know, uh, deliberately created a different culture, much more like a startup, you know, even from the, the clothes that people were wearing, you know, people would wear casual clothes rather than suits as it was at Sky. And there was a lot to do. We had a, a sort of campaign to, to start off that, that would sort of get us going. It didn't work. Uh, the first time we did it, we spent, you know, like four million pounds or something. And it, and it just did not work at all. It failed embarrassingly badly. <laughs> and so there was a, a point in the beginning where we, were, you know, we could have thought, hang on, maybe this is not not so good. But we changed a couple of things. We learned from it. We changed a couple of things, reduced the price. You know, we, we actually started off at 15 pounds, wow. which you can imagine is just, you know, way out of way out of line for, for this kind of thing uh, these days. So we, we pretty much halved the price, did some actual thinking, <laughs> I suppose, about what people wanted to hear and went again. And it started to work a little bit, started to work. And then another sort of uh, important turning point for them and for me, actually, was that, you know, again, looking at the, the sort of unit economics, looking at what we could do with the free trial and what we could spend and so on, I sort of made a suggestion that we could actually spend a bit more uh, and do some certain, some slightly different promotional types. And that even though they might look bad, you know, in terms of payback in the first month or two, based on our extrapolations, uh, they would actually turn good. And so we tried these things and it worked. And I remember the day we had a report 
that used to sort of digital report that was on a TV screen in the corner for a campaign that we did on the um, Microsoft Xbox that I'd literally had to set up by like editing the live website, <laughs> you know, you know, like a surgeon sort of operating on something where if you get make one one <laughs> the dot in the wrong place, then the whole website's going to fall over. And we're doing it at home on the weekend or something like that. And uh, this this campaign went live, and there was a graph, and you could see literally see it sort of turn in a way that it never turned before and start going up by the minute. And we had, you know, a couple of thousand uh, signups when previously we were sort of running at 50 a day or something like that. And I remember everyone in the office turning around and going, wow, this is, this is working. Something happening here. And then, (laughs) and there was a real energy of people going, okay, right. We're going, this is it now. This is like, this train's moving. Let's get on this. And then, and there was a, and that really kind of pushed us forward and, and gave me, you know, a feeling of, self-confidence that I wasn't making it up and the things that I did know could work and and really actually kind of drive forward um, a business. So it was a really important moment for me when that happened. So what, what was kind of the key lesson learned? Keep testing stuff, look at the long term i suppose rather than just focusing immediately on you know mm-hmm. what you know we need to be profitable right away etc and yeah bringing people along with you as well so the you know the, the fact that that was sort of happening publicly you know people's shoulders were down before that you know being mm-hmm. told that the product wasn't going to work and so on and it really you know everyone wanted to come and work for for now tv at sky from that point on because they realized that it was something that was going to grow rapidly um, and all of, all the sort of benefits that go along with that, you know, from a career perspective of seeing rapid growth and having abundant opportunity beyond your own role. Uh, and, that, and that was the same for me. I you know, had the opportunity to launch us into retail. I'd never, never worked in retail before, but I was driving up and down the country trying to sell the Now TV box to category managers at Dixon's and Ogos <laughs> and so on. Absolutely exhausting but hugely valuable experiences. And to what extent back then did you focus on online versus offline channels? Did it change during your time at Sky? And also what was kind of, I guess, the role of creative versus technology-driven marketing? Sky has a fairly broad demographic, let's say. And um, they, you know, when you look at the main brand, Big Sky, as we call it, uh, they're obviously very heavy and above the line, very heavy in broadcast, TV, outdoor, etc. For now TV, two things. One, we didn't necessarily have the budgets to sort of go big on that. And secondly, our audience was different. It was uh, going to be younger, slightly less affluent, more in tune with uh, technology. They're you know, accessing streaming through their PlayStation, their Xbox and, and their TV uh, at the time. And so we, 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 you know, we started with digital marketing. So my you know first channels that I was running were affiliates and PPC and in some display. So there was definitely a, a focus towards performance marketing and digital marketing in the early days. Partnerships as well, you know, often overlooked, but really, really valuable for us as a marketing channel. And it was only over the sort of coming years as we got bigger, and you know as well as I do that we're sort of replicating this to some extent at Gusto, mm-hmm. that we started to move you know, up the funnel uh, and deliberately so, you know, in a very kind of measured way, you know, thoughtful planning, you know, evaluating, et cetera. And if you can go a bit deeper, like a lot of people at some point feel like they have to emotionally invest into the brand, whereas you always had this toolbox. So how do you think about this in a very measured way? 
so it goes it kind of goes back to first principles and as i mentioned i you know, entered marketing in a non-traditional way i didn't have a marketing degree or do any qualifications or anything like that but as i was there i you know i pretty much read everything every day i was reading on the train you know in the evening etc and just studying how everything worked and it was fascinating to obviously take in all the different opinions because it is it's in many ways a matter of opinion it's not perfect science so you know me being that very analytical rational person was being educated in in how to balance that emotion and that kind of rational approach to things and with everything you know, that we did we sort of took it back to what we could measure whether that's through um you know, behavior customer behavior or through um uh, uh surveys and so on because they are valuable and we sort of built it back to a model and that's one of the things that you know has worked well for me over the years is trying to model behavior in some way like an like an economist i suppose um and although you know it's not perfect it's definitely a big step in the right direction and so as we started to uh you know move up the funnel and invest more into above the line we did that on the basis of modeling so modeling customer response modeling customer behavior measuring it adjusting uh, reviewing changing course where necessary and so there was one side of it which is which was the using media and promotion and advertising to influence behavior that was very rational and on the emotional side there were two things one was in terms of messaging and creative you need to cut through you need to stand out um, you need to appeal you need to differentiate and for us, it wasn't differentiating just from competitors like Netflix, which was important, uh, but also from the main brand at Sky, because we didn't want to cannibalize. So we had to you know, do some real sort of classical thinking about how we positioned ourselves into a little niche that you know, stood up against Netflix, but didn't take away from you know, take a custom, potential customer away from Sky. So there was, a lot, there was a lot of research that went into that to create that messaging, that uh, creative positioning so that we looked very different. You know, one of the objectives was we want people to look at Now TV and not really know that it's even Sky. And, and a lot of people even today still don't know that it's actually part of Sky. And how big roughly is Now TV today versus uh, Netflix in the UK? I'm not sure. I haven't looked at it for a while. I, you know, from last memory, it was maybe half the size or something like that, but I'm not too sure. And back then, we launched a, about the same time as Netflix, and Netflix we just saw obviously taking off rapidly, and we were sort of a bit disappointed at that. But they had, they had, you know, uh, I guess a brand name awareness advantage when they launched in the UK on pretty much day one, they were at 25% awareness because of the mm. overflow from the States. And then within six months, they were 80%. <laughs> within six months within six wow. months it's ridiculous wow. for, it's for, ridiculous. for years the you know the md at sky would sort of have us in and say look why how they've done this why are you not there yet because we followed a much more you know traditional fairly slow growth uh in awareness path we, i think we were when i left we were probably about 70 percent or so and that was after four years of doing it did you ever imagine it would get this big no and that's another you know lesson that we learned which was we sat down on you know pre day one and said look how big do you think it can be let's let's look at the proposition look at you know the the uk population look at the demographics look at the desire for this kind of stuff and how big can it be and uh the analysts sort of came out of all that and said look we think that the most it can be uh is about 300,000 customers 
<laughs> that's the most, and that's like in the in the limit in the long term. And uh, so when we got to four hundred thousand after a couple of years, we're like, oh, okay, that was wrong. And then we went on to a million and, and onwards. And, and so it just goes to show that it's very static, that kind of analysis. It's like based on what we know today and what today is, this is what it's going to be. But that clearly the world changes and you have to remember that. I think that's an incredibly powerful um, message, especially kind of in a category like ours today at Gusto, where it's literally still blue ocean. Um, yeah. You know, we're pushing the boundaries. We're innovating constantly. We want to make every meal, make the planet better off. And like, there's so much potential that people probably can't imagine where we can take it in the next couple of years. Yeah. How big did you think Gusto could be when you sort of started <laughs> it off? <laughs> to be honest, I had big dreams but it's succeeding these dreams and what i'm most excited about is that you know last year we had 53 million meals eaten in the uk that's 0.2 percent of all dinners um and so it's not it's not tiny but why can it not be one percent two percent three percent so all of a sudden you still realize it's a drop in the ocean and there's so much potential. And yes, the value proposition is genuinely good and we have a really high NPS score and the virtuous cycle of high NPS driving growth. But ultimately, there are like a million ideas how we can make it better and huge levers to pull. So I'll be really fascinated to see what happens to customer satisfaction, positioning, all these things in the next three, four years. I think it will be massively fun to see the impact on numbers. Yeah. And then on the topic of Gusto, so at some point you decided to leave Sky, I guess. Yeah, so I left Sky. I had a little intermission at uh, Ovo Energy, which was really useful um, because I learned that sometimes it doesn't work out. Uh, I found that it just wasn't interesting me because uh, I had thought that marketing is marketing and selling is selling, um, but I wasn't really interested in the product. And so I wasn't inspired and I didn't find there was much to do. Um, so I sort of cut my losses and uh, found Gusto, my, made one application for one job, which was this one. I thought, I really want this one. Um, I, I, you, know, you probably, I don't know if I ever told you, but you know, for the case study, I was I stayed up till 3 a.m. four wow. days in a row working on it wow. after work. So I really well, want it. It came, came across. <laughs> um, it was the best case study ever. And we had, um, you know, very... Um, big, big, heavy hitting CMOs from big company supply. And uh, you blew us all away. And I'm forever grateful. And so how did you find Gusto in the early days? Like describe how it looked, uh, tiny office, small team. I mean, I think since you joined, I didn't look up the exact number, but I think the company has grown by something like 30x in the last four and a half, five years. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked it. So it was, as you know, in that office in Acton, uh, you know, crammed into desks, not very comfortable, quite scrappy. <laughs> it certainly was, yeah. But that's exactly what I wanted, and reminded me of the early days at Now TV. I thought, okay, this is this is where this is where this is how the, this is how good things happen with people crammed together, uh, struggling in a way, having to you know work stuff out on the fly, move quickly, uh, feel connected with each other, so that they wanted to to, to kind of push hard. I really, really liked that aspect of it. And the other thing well, as well was that um, it was really smart. So everyone here was really smart, you know, had given a lot of thought to where, you know, what they were doing. There were still gaps, you know, the, when I took on the marketing team, it were, I don't think anyone in that team had actually worked in marketing 
in, in, in a real sense elsewhere. And so they were kind of making it up, but, but landing on, on the right principles and, and doing it pretty well. So there was just a little bit to do to, you know, shape that up, but the, the core was there and the, the willing was there and the ambition was there, which was the most important thing. And how did you then build your own team? The first thing to do was to, I guess, land and steady the ship and make sure that whilst I was building a, a new team, the, the existing team wouldn't fall over and the, we'd still kind of continue gunning for what we had to do at the time. Um, but the first thing was to find uh, a leader for the team, uh, a head of acquisition, who I, you know, I took a risk on, as you know, a young lady uh, who had come out of a media agency at the time, um, which isn't the traditional place to find people to work in startups in marketing. It's normally quite difficult to, to transfer across from that type of environment. But she had previously worked at a startup and I could tell had the hunger to work in a startup again. And it was that evidence of her having that hunger from previously working in a startup that said, okay, I think this person is going to like move heaven and earth to try and like build this function and build this team. I remember meeting her as part of the interview process and Lavi's passion and her drive and her energy and her vision of what she could build wow it was overwhelming um i yeah. think you did a great job finding her and um yeah yeah so it started with that and then sort of bit by bit bringing people in with experience and, and it's a it's something that you know i don't do anymore and, and probably don't want to do anymore but i kind of got really hands-on i sat down with people i did stuff myself You know, got back into the weeds, showed people what good looked like or could be. Uh, I think you know, describe it as the pace setters type style, and I knew everything down to the you know the bottom you know channel and the the last kind of tactic, so that I could get it moving, get it going, and then sort of hand on the bat and say, look, keep it going like this, keep it spinning this way, and that's my style. I, I like to I like to know the detail and then sort of hand it over, rise out of it, and then wait for that moment when the person who's taken it on exceeds my expectations and I go wow I, I would never have thought of that myself and that's amazing that you've taken it beyond where I thought I could even get it so yeah just getting into the detail finding people who were really ambitious really driven um, that's much more important than the I guess the experience because with marketing especially performance marketing you can learn it really quickly you can teach yourself so yes getting people who had the drive uh, was the most important thing. Yeah, and I mean, look, huge credit to you. You've done such a great job empowering people, developing people. I, I don't see many leaders doing what you do, spending so much time transferring knowledge to others. And so I think you've, you've really managed to build a very high-performing team. And what's really impressive, you've, you've built a really great balance between you know, very data-led marketeers, hustlers, um, growth hackers. But then on the other hand, you've got incredibly creative people, you know, designers, um, copywriters, um, artists. And it's really, really powerful seeing that combination of both and you being able to empower both sides. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I have a curiosity about people. I, you know, I've you know, personally changed over the last 20 years from being uh, a classical introvert who wouldn't like to be left alone at a party uh, to somehow now really enjoying that, like almost craving that. I, I'm fascinated by speaking to people. I love interviewing people, you know, for, for roles and finding out their life story. I think just having a curiosity in people 
has helped build my sense of creativity and and, and uh, you know bring people into the team from you know all different types of backgrounds and disciplines. And then I guess over time we saw the techification of marketing. Um, Gusto adopted a tribe model, um, so we started to embed data scientists, um, large technology teams into marketing. How has it kind of changed marketing, and what's the potential you unlocked? Yeah, so it was always there to some extent. So as you know, we have a very data-led marketing team, and the individuals themselves back a couple of years ago would try to teach themselves SQL and teach themselves financial analysis and try to build things when they could, tech solutions using third-party tools and so on. So it was always there in this sort of hacker kind of way. And that was due to, I guess, a lack of tech resource, but there was always the desire for it. And so as we moved to this new model, I guess 18 months ago or so, maybe a bit more, that was basically filling in and unlocking those needs that the team had um, by bringing resource in, aligning them very closely so that everybody had shared goals and objectives and meaning that we could move much faster. So instead of a, uh, a PPC manager trying to do the analysis on their last campaign, you've got a data scientist or a, uh, a data analyst helping out. Then you've got someone from finance in the tribe who's there to work out whether this promotion was effective or not very quickly. And then finally, of course, you know, part of the customer journey is once they are on the site or on the app and beyond and, and all the bits around it, and you've got access to tech teams to help you learn really, really quickly and test really quickly. And so a lot of the growth that we've seen from the last two years or so has come as a result of being able to test much faster and do experimentation in combination with the, the engineers. And to give you an example, you know, our referral scheme, uh, refer a friend scheme used to be something like 10% of new customers and it's grown to almost 40%. And part of that was definitely a result of changes that we made to the journey. Um, and that wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't been working so closely with the, the tech team under the tribe model. And I guess 20 years ago, I would fly somewhere on a business trip and I would look up a hotel brand I already know. Um, and obviously today I go in any city in the world and I look up booking.com and I just book whatever, you know, has um, the best reviews at the right price point. And so to some extent, it feels like, you know, it's not only us driving marketing through technology, but the entire world is shifting towards this product era transparency, consumer ratings, reviews, um, referrals, NPS powering uh, the virtuous circle and therefore growth being driven by by product, not just marketing. How do you feel about that? I think they go together. So as, as you know, mark, the word marketing encompasses all aspects of meeting customers' needs and advertising and promotion is just one of them and product is is another part of it. You know, when we when we think about brand in its broadest sense, that really means, you know, the, the promise that we're making to customers and it can only exist in people's minds as a result of the experiences that they have and their, their friends' experiences. So they all kind of link together in my mind. And you know, if people have great experiences, which we measure, measure, of course, through MPS, then that is growing the company, that's growing the brand in, in one way. And they all have to be in balance. And it's really, really exciting. And I think that the way that we work at Gusto and the way that we're aligned means that we can, we can you know, we're in a great position to push all that stuff forward. 
Yeah, it's powerful. And just on on culture, I guess, um, you know, you have you need so many people to cross functionally collaborate. So you've got tech, you've got data scientists, you've got marketeers, they're product people. Everyone has to pull from the same side. How do you as a leader, as the chief marketing officer, how do you think about creating the right conditions for people to win, you know, creating a values led culture? It starts with hiring, of course. So bringing in people that match our sort of cultural principles, our ownership principles, which we do you know, quite well, I think. You know, everybody, you know, 95% of the people that join say when they arrive, it's exactly like how you said it would be. It really is true. It's not just words on a wall. It's people really are like this. And the collaboration is really, really important. And the way I describe that is that when people learn something really interesting and and powerful about customers or or, or anything to do with uh, what we're doing, they can't wait to share it and see how it can benefit other people and so on. So they're really, really kind of open and sharing. And and for me, uh, in terms of creating culture beyond just sort of finding the right people, role modeling, of course, is important. I love knowing everybody on the team all the way down. And as we get bigger, uh, it's it's more difficult. And of course, as we're remote, it's more difficult. But it, it was really, really important to me, you know, spending time with everybody at all levels so they could see the ownership principles in action. They can look around and observe and and recognize recognize them in everybody. So absolutely, me kind of spending time with everyone was was one of the things that I did and and one of the things that I'm struggling with actually a little bit in the in the remoteness that we've had over the last year is how do you how do you ensure that you keep that culture going when you don't have all those little micro moments um at someone's desk or you know over a coffee etc interesting maybe to to an, another another day to think about how that can be how, how that can be done but it's a big topic and one that will become really important as we start to go back in in some kind of mixed mode and all the different companies around the UK and the world are you know grappling with this this topic yeah it's really hard i think you know to create these water fountain moments um you have to be so much more intentional in a remote world because there's no serendipity you don't mm. walk into these people in the in the in the hall um, so it's definitely a massive challenge. And just on a personal level, how did you find scaling yourself as a leader, I guess, defining what it is that only Tom can do and then trying to really empower other people, get the very best out of them, get them to win? How did you find that journey? So it's one that, you know, uh, you know, you have to go on uh, and so not what well, I'm not afraid of. And it's one that you sort of face into. So I recognised that I'm again. I'm quite rational. I thought, okay, this is this is gonna this is how it's gonna be. This is what's needed, and it it really for me came down to having the right people. I could only it would only work if, when I had the right people. So any time, as you know, I I didn't have the right people, and, it, and I tried to get away from the detail. I tried to scale myself. It just wouldn't work. Mm. And the only and, and the, the the only answer, unfortunately, is that you need to change the people, uh, and that's one of the big things that I learned at Gusto and in particularly from you is you just can't do it with, if if you don't have the right people, and you have to make pretty tough decisions sometimes. So that that's a big lesson for me um, on on scaling myself. Oh, it's so hard. Good today is mediocre tomorrow, and if you double the business every single year, it's just so hard to anticipate the slope of change, the implication on you as a person, the implication on the team. It's really, really hard. I mean, I'm hugely glad that today we've got a huge um, L&D department, you know, supporting people, training people. And that's kind of the benefit of being a scale-up, no longer a startup. We actually have resources. Um, we invest in coaching, mentoring, and so on. And what 
still energizes and excites you every day. You know what's really interesting? Uh, every day I'm energized by uh, what we're doing, and that's a real blessing. And there's, you know, all other you know, the other jobs that I've had, it would be probably 25% of the days I'd be like, oh, I don't fancy it today. But today it really is. And the things that energize me are, it's just a really interesting product. Interesting, not just to me, but to you know most of the country because food is, is something that everybody loves. So that's, you know, getting reactions from people when you talk about it, that's really energizing. Coming in, working with great people is extremely energizing. You know, I know that pretty much every conversation, conversation I'm going to have in a given day, I'm going to learn something. It's going to be interesting. I'm going to have a great interaction on those things I find very, very energizing. And just building something, you know, build, building something that has got such a, a great future ahead of it. And, you know, for us being inside the business and seeing what's going on to go, hang on, this is, this is really working. And there's lots of opportunity here. It's a really <laughs> great vantage point as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I mean, I, I'm massively inspired by, by building amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet. And, and to me, that just is super, super exciting. And then, as you said, like seeing the how talented the people are, how intelligent, how driven, but at the same time, how caring and kind they actually are. I love everyone working at Gusto and it's just so powerful seeing these people succeed at scale. And one of the biggest learnings for me personally has been, you know, this whole journey as a leadership team. So we as a team moved from no team to a team, to a very high performing team and a very, very tight team meeting four or five times a week. How did you find that journey? Really interesting. So as you know, I, I joined about the same time that the, the team as its current form uh, was started. You know, be, I was probably the, the newest member of that team, let's say. So I, I found it initially intimidating um, because, you know, everybody else had been there for a little bit longer I you know, felt like maybe I was, you know, a little bit of imposter syndrome in a way. You know, it was my first uh, job, uh, um, you know, working directly for the CEO of a company. And so I thought, well, am I the right person? <laughs> you know, especially when I mean, the first six months, things were a little bit rocky. You know, we, the sales weren't going exactly the right direction. Thankfully, they got on track. But, <laughs> you know, I did feel a little bit of an imposter syndrome. Um, and then, you know, as time went on, I went to a few board meetings, realized that, you know, I did know what I was doing and it did work. Um, I gained confidence from that and could, I guess, start to slide slowly away from the detail of working in you know, the marketing team. I was about to say my team, uh, but into what is now my team, as we describe it, the leadership team was a, was a great shift and, and realized that, you know, that mental shift of saying, okay, this is my team, which we all sort of took at some point uh, was a, was a great moment to think, okay, this is where I spend my time. This is where I develop relationships. This is where we uh, identify our ways of working, our, you know, charter, our behaviors, our, you know, good behaviors or bad behaviors and work on those. And I think that journey has been one of the most interesting team journeys I've had because you don't often have the chance to think about a team in that way uh, for such an extended period of time. Because, you know, teams, we're lucky that we've had a very stable team for this time to, to have that journey when, when a lot of teams can go through churn much more quickly. So it's been a, quite a privilege actually to be working on it and adjusting it and improving it over that amount of time. 
What's been the toughest personally? I mean, you talked about the challenge of remote work, COVID being really hard, not seeing people. So that was tough. You mentioned imposter syndrome in, in the early days and then you building confidence um, as the results kicked in. But like, what's been the toughest on the journey? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, making hard decisions has been pretty tough. But the one of the things that it's not, it's not so much a, a tough as in like painful thing, but trying to let go of the my natural behavior, which is slightly risk averse and, you know, feel comfortable taking bigger risks, which is obviously something that you've kind of led the company and me personally uh, towards. I always, I found that really difficult because I, I hate failure. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, uh, I, I, I feel like it's tied up with perhaps tied up with the imposter syndrome, you know, my first failure, that means, Oh, that's it. No, definitely. He was lying all along. You can't do it. <laughs> um, so like learning to let go of, of that fear and embrace, you know, the ability to set big ambitions was quite difficult because it, it feels, you know, it felt exposing in a way and vulnerable. Um, but I suppose in the last four years, I've got comfortable with feeling vulnerable in many ways. Um, that's a really powerful point. I, I guess from a philosophy point, I always felt that, you know, you have to live at the edge of your capability and failure kind of helps you to recognize areas where you need to evolve. Yeah. Um, but it's a very positive one because if you're too far away from failure, you're kind of playing it too safe. And so you almost have to get across that that line, fail a bit, see where your capability is, evolve again you know, pain plus reflection equals growth. Um, but but now it's been a really, really tough one. Yeah. And obviously we all have to reinvent ourselves as the company gets bigger and the teams get bigger and the challenges get very different. Yeah, agree. Look, Tom, thank you so much for joining. One of the biggest and most fun things for me personally has been seeing you succeed at scale. And it's just a huge privilege um, to work with you. So thank you for taking the time today, but for the last five years. Thank you very much, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> amazing. Let's uh, let's have amazing, uh, you know, many, many more amazing years to come. Cheers, Tom. Thank Brilliant. you. Thank you.